I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Man Group. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. How do you go about greening the world's second largest economy? If that sounds too abstract, then try this. Picture one of the largest cities in the world shrouded in a miasma of smog. Its citizens forced to wear pollution masks or stay indoors. I'm talking about Beijing, though I could easily be describing another half dozen cities. Growing up in Los Angeles in the 1990s, I can remember myself the days when the air quality plunged and the horizon all but disappeared. What makes China's own response to this urgency so interesting, not just to the effects of environmental pollution, but to climate change more broadly, is the scope of its ambitions. But the combination of China's top-down, state-led governance model and the political imperative to tackle climate change requires a delicate balance between the environment and economic growth. It's meant a realignment across national, provincial, and city-level governments, as well as the launch of a carbon market that'll be twice as large as Europe's. But questions remain. Like, what happens when global growth slows, particularly given the current trade frictions? What are the social implications of climate change? And how is China creating its own equivalent of the just transition? Most of all, what does it portend for China's role in international efforts to address climate change now that the United States has untethered itself from the Paris Agreement? Here to talk about how China is greening its financial system in order to address climate change is Professor Yao Wang. Professor Wang is the Director General of China's International Institute of Green Finance and the Director of the Research Center for Climate and Energy Finance. She's also the Deputy Secretary General of the Green Finance Committee of the China Society of Finance and Banking. Professor Wang's research focuses on the low-carbon economy, climate finance, and green finance. She's the author of two books, including Carbon Finance, Global Vision and Distribution in China, and another titled Climate Finance. The International Institute of Green Finance provides research, expertise, and policy recommendations in the area of climate finance, green finance, energy finance, and pension finance to the People's Bank of China, the Ministry of Finance, the National Development and Reform Commission, and local governments. Welcome to the show, Professor Wang. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much, Jason. I'm really excited about this. Before we get into some of the big questions, I'd love to start out with your background and, and your motivation, not just for studying environmental policy, but how that has ultimately evolved into one of climate finance and green finance. Okay, thank you. Uh, you know, actually, I worked in investment bank for seven years. And uh, when I worked in investment bank, I found that for our clients, they are all pre-listed companies. They actually, most of them do not pay attention, didn't pay attention to environmental problem. But uh, then there are some regulations and uh, that will affect their IPO process. So after almost seven years uh, investment bank uh, experience, I came back and I hope I can do something for capital market because I'm very keen to protect environment. This is a very serious problem. Environmental problem is a very serious problem in China. So uh, if I can use my profession, my career with environmental protection, 
I think that that will be very, very good. Okay. So I choose this area. Right. Yeah, it's, mm. I mean, it seems like your research and your leadership roles have really run parallel with the emergence of China uh, and its leadership in environmental policy and the development of financial innovation in this area, as well as technological innovation. But first, can we set the scene? Can you set the scene for us in the sense of maybe describing the trajectory of, of where China has come from around its entry into the WTO? around 2001 and to today, and how all of that development has happened. Okay. Uh, you know, actually, China gained uh, tremendous economic growth by free trade brought by WTO. But unfortunately, at the same time, a lot of pollution happened, and China to be, uh, be a world factory. But that caused a very huge problem is on environment. So um, uh, since then, environmental problems have become more and more significant. And however, in fact, China's environmental environmental policy or trajectory started since 1970s. Um, the first National Environmental Protection Conference was held in 1973. Uh, a year after the first UN conference on the human environment. And then from uh, 1978 to 1992, by publishing the uh, environmental protection law and establishing the National uh, Environmental Protection Ministry, environmental protection is gradually put onto an important position as a national development strategy. And after uh, joining WTO, there has been a stronger management on environmental issues. Since 2002, uh, establishing resource-saving and environmental-friendly societies put on a key national strategy uh, by the party and, and the state. You know, uh, China have five-year plans. Mm -hmm. So from uh, from uh, 11th five-year plan, we have uh, environmental targets, mm -hmm. uh, very strict environmental uh, targets. And, uh, and, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I remember um, within that plan reading that uh, the incentives mm -hmm. from the national level to the local, the provincial level, yeah. were suddenly changed. Right. And, and it was no longer a priority around economic growth. Mm -hmm. It was uh, a balance, let's say, f around environmental objectives, a cleaner environment, mm -hmm. um, and trying to sustain economic growth. Correct? Right. Right, right, right. We, we do have, um, uh, you know, actually from central government and also local government, they will have their own plans according to our five-year plan. So uh, all the environmental targets, they, all the uh, local level and, and the central, central level, they should get the targets, right? Got mm -hmm. it, got it. Can you, um, for a second, maybe describe the problem? I mean, you know, from a Western perspective, uh, you see a lot of pictures of the smog or the pollution problem, in, you know, in downtown Beijing. Right. Um, and, and you hear about uh, uh, water issues. And, and, you know, and, and you're right, as the world's factory, effectively, many other countries have, have essentially have exported their pollution to China. Um, you could make that argument. But what's the political imperative? You know, what's the urgency um, uh, around that much pollution right now? 
Yeah, I think uh, pollution not only not only air pollution, but also water, soil. We are are all highly polluted, so it's very serious. I think this smog is a big stress not only for Beijing citizens like me, uh, but also other cities and also city government. So now the government made great efforts on that. From I think from 2013, and and、uh, to fix the issue.、Uh, for example, for、uh, Beijing government, they issue Issued the first local legislation law on air pollution and carry on on 2014. And on financial level, Beijing City promised 760 billion for PM 2.5 reduction. I think it's very urgent for us because that、uh, pollution affects human life. Uh, and our healthy, and also affect the industry development.、Mm. Yeah.、Mm. And to go back to that point between、um, environmental objectives at the national level, and then transmitting that down successfully,、mm-hmm. changing behavior at the local level, at the provincial level. How long has it taken to kind of align, you know, those interests? Is there still, you know, a gap, or do people get it at the local level? Yeah, the mechanism for the policy, how to. Conducted, I think is a.、Uh, we have a、uh, two level. One is state level. State level, we have state council, and、uh, and there are many ministries. All the ministries have their own policies. And for the local level, because at the local level they have their departments, they would get the. Requirements from the central ministry. The ministries they have、uh, different policies, and then the local levels there's a department should have their own how to get the target. And the different province, the provincial level they have their own policies. So I think there are still gap,、mm-hmm. but、uh, I think China because China is a. Every policy have top-down characteristics. So in China, we are one party. So I think sometimes more effective than Western countries because if the local government said we have a plan, we should got the targets. It is connected to their promotion and also this province and some other、uh, supported policy to them. So they are very keen to get the target. So I think there's still some gap, but I think it's now on environmental policy. Now local government pay more attention on that because there's a we will say one vote rejected. If they cannot get the environmental targets, although you have done a lot on other or like GDP or other things very well, that means you are not、uh, so successful. Yeah. When you think about economic growth over the last decade, as China has. Funded or financed, you know, big, very ambitious environmental projects and objectives. They've been able to do that with the support of pretty strong economic growth, GDP growth of more than you know six percent.、Um, what happens in times where you're not supported by strong economic growth?、Um, potentially, even you know, over the next couple of years, where、uh, we're already seeing frictions around、uh, global trade. Where does the environment as a priority? Sort of sit under that scenario.、Mm-hmm. Uh, in my uh, uh, opinion, I think because of the high-speed development, that causes serious pollution problem. Because I think that balance is not so well、uh, for the past thirty years. So, well, I don't think the slower growth does not affect our environmental targets. And、um, uh, I think.、Uh, 
if, for example, due to the trade uh, friction between the U.S., uh, we uh, uh, China's solar industry has suffered with some uh, trade problems. Uh, some small companies even collapse. Uh, but I think this is a double side, double side issue. On the other side, you will see that some companies which are more international and innovated, so they will improve themselves. So that is, uh, and also they are uh, forming a transition power to take the green development more effectively because their own capacity improved. And also I think the environmental objectives now rank um, not lower, but actually higher. Actually now in China, from the high authority to the public, there's no debate that we should protect environment, but it's how to do that, mm. you know, and also to change the awareness, just like, you know, we are all very familiar with investors. They are keen on profits, benefits. Yeah. So uh, they don't think uh, responsible investment do not give them uh, benefits. Uh, on one side, they will say, yes, we should uh, protect our environment, but on the other side, they will continuously invest in polluted area. So now seems is that how to leverage them, how to encourage them to invest in this area, or how to ask other stakeholders to change their behavior. Yeah, and that takes us right into the next question, which is how do you see China thinking about and using the financial markets to solve some of these societal and environmental issues? We have seen within the EU and the Sustainable Finance Package what looks like something that is very outcome-oriented. They're trying to solve for the need for green infrastructure, the need for green jobs. How would you describe China's approach to this? Yeah, I think the uh, greening of the financial system is of great importance to to make a success of China's uh, environmental agenda more generally. So, you know, China actually is the leading country on promoting green finance. In 2016, China's central bank, PBOC, and other six ministries, they launched a guideline for establishing China's green financial system, this guideline. And in this guideline, China gave uh, what is green finance, what's green financial system, and how, why China should develop green finance. I think it's a quite comprehensive framework policy to guide the financial market to change their behavior, to invest more in green area, not in a high-polluted area. So just like we encourage green loan, uh, green securities, green insurance, green PPP, and uh, environmental, just like carbon markets uh, and other water markets, and uh, local green finance development and uh, international green finance cooperation, also green risk management. So it's a very comprehensive one. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely want to come back to carbon markets because mm-hmm. it's it's pretty exciting what China is working on. Mm. But um, I think for for a few minutes though, can you kind of describe China's role and leadership in this area? I don't think that a, enough people. Uh, realize the role it's playing. Um, you find that uh, Mark Carney, and he's done a great job at the mm-hmm. Bank of England, mm-hmm. um, tends to get a lot of credit, you know, the BOE stance for climate change and climate risk, not mm-hmm. just to the financial community. But in reality, the Bank of England, among others, has worked very closely with China uh, in terms of developing the G20 policies. Could you right. spend a bit of time describing that? 
Yeah, sure. And um, it's also in 2016 when China uh, was a G20's presidency. Uh, China first put green finance as a main topic of G20 framework. So th、uh, they set up a G20 green finance study group and co-chairs are China and the UK. And so People's Bank of China and Bank of England. Initiate this study group. So in 2016, they、uh, analysis globally to develop green finance was the challenges, and、uh, they give seven recommendations, including very clear policy signal first, and then、uh, how to develop、uh, green bond domestically, and how to develop green bond、uh, cross border、uh, green bond, and also environmental information disclosure. That's why TCFD. So in in twenty seventeen, when Germany to be the it was the presidency of G twenty, they continuously keep this green finance as a study group as one of the main topic, and also they focus on the data, the environmental、uh, risk analysis, and also to get more data because for the investors, if they haven't more data to do the analysis, they, they maybe will make wrong decision. So this is a. Uh, last year's framework, and also China UK is a co-chair of this study group, and this year is Argentina is the presidency. They change the name、uh, from green finance to sustainable finance, but but of course it's a green framework, and、uh, they focus on green securitization, green fintech, and also green、uh, WSP is a instrument. Can we talk about TCFD, the Task Force for Climate? Related financial disclosure, as well as something that was announced, which is around mandatory ESG disclosure for listed companies and bond issuers in China. It's really, really interesting that this is happening. And you know, to your point earlier, when it is applied at a top-down kind of central planning perspective, people are really optimistic that this can happen in a uniform, comparable way. On the other side, though, I guess because of the scale of China and the number of issuers within the A shares, and the fact that it's a, a relatively new index, I guess there's some skepticism about just how quickly the adoption and the integrity of that kind of reporting will take place. What do you think? I think China,、uh, because China have just like you mentioned, China has a, a characteristics top to down. The related regulators now they they will launch some documents on that. For example, China's China's Securities Regulatory Commission (CSRC) now they are working on a ESG guideline and also for mandatory environmental information disclosure. So they declare that by 2020. All the listed companies, China have more than three thousand、uh, listed companies. They should disclose their environmental information. This year, those high polluted and high emitted companies, they already disclose some important indicators. So, I think next year and by 2020, all the listed company will have the capacity to do that. And Now the challenges was the methodology.、Mm-hmm. You know, they already have、uh, just like ESG, MSCI, and、mm-hmm. uh, S and P, and Fuji. They、uh, have their own methodology, but China maybe will develop a localized methodology. Let's talk about something else that you've written a lot about,、um, uh, and it's been core of your your research, which is carbon markets. China will commercialize its. Cap and trade program by 2020. After a number of years of of testing and architecting, it's going to be, 
I think, twice the size of the European ETS markets, the emission trading scheme markets. Um, So it's going to be very, very big. Give us a sense of what the challenges, the practical challenges of kind of creating that big a national carbon market uh, is. Uh, Yeah. You know, just like you mentioned, actually, it's a very delighted news that China will uh, build biggest carbon emission trading system. But actually, from 2013, we already have uh, pilots. We have uh, nine pilots. Among them, one pilots haven't any transaction yet, uh, but other eight pilots they have already have uh, transactions. I can give you a number: is uh, from September 2017 to August 2018, the volume of the eight pilots was uh, 196 million tons, and the turnover was 1.27 billion RMB. Uh, it's quite small. It's not huge. Uh, I think the challenge is that, uh, first of all, the lack of liquidity. You know, uh, most of the transaction happened before they should submit their their allowance. So there's not so many traders in the market. This is not because of traders do not want to trade. It's because of the design, the high-level design. They do not want many other stakeholders in, in this uh, market. So that's a cause of problem, that how to make the liquidity. You know, they are always have the provider because for those, uh, they have enough allowance they would like to, to sell, right? But who is the demander? And, and also the sector, they're almost the same. Later, they have only power generation sector. So they will face the same problem. If they demand allowance, all is a buyers. But if they have enough allowance, maybe because that's connected to the economy, right? Mm-hmm. So all is a seller. So that is a problem. So how to design? I think the biggest challenge is the high-level design. Are there some lessons that you think that are to be gleaned from the European ETS market yes, in terms yes. of the right design and maybe some design flaws? Yeah, sure. Actually, China pilots have really learned a lot from EU. I think EU, the biggest problem is that uh, when, when as a first step, they designed that, they were not thinking about the, they don't have the awareness that they will have an economy crisis, right? And so they have a huge supply. But, you know, for the demand, because of the economy crisis, the demand down. And, but for the supply, at the, at the beginning, they supplied a lot. Because when they designed that, they want the market act. But they, so how to act that they give more allowance to the entities. So these lessons have already adopted by China's government. So now China's government, when they give allowance to NDRC, give, uh, uh, now it's MEE, they give allowance to the entities, they were very conscious about that. And what, yeah. what, what about the carbon price? Will you link it to the ETS, to the European carbon price? No. Will you? Will there be, uh, if not, will you look at potentially introducing a carbon floor like the UK has? Actually, this is a big problem. You know, we have uh, eight pilots. We couldn't find the the principles that Beijing pilots, the price is a 50 yuan. In Guangzhou, it's lower than 20 yuan. So you don't know why. Maybe that's the same sector. And uh, and why the price is uh, is different so so much. So because their lack of liquidity, they couldn't get good mechanisms to have a good price. I mean, this pricing mechanism doesn't work, mm. according to 
uh, now the de design. I mean, if we hope to have a working mechanisms, we should have uh, enough transactions, mm. enough uh, participants. I, I don't think, by, by the way, it's sort of interesting mm. because I, I think a lot of people from many of the articles and conversations that I've had are impatient with kind of the slow launch of China's market. And I don't think they understand the complexity of trying to do this in a way that avoids some of the design issues that the Europe's market had mm -hmm. um, and can allow for the just scale of China. I think for the regulators, MEE, uh, they have addressing climate change department. Uh, they are very conscious about that. Now they are to the high-level design. The first step, they are working on the MRV. This is also data thing, you know. MRV is very, very important and the registration uh, system and also the trade system. Uh, now Shanghai uh, Environmental Exchange, later there will be a national exchange to exchange all the transactions. So they are working on a national, a national market. I think this is the first step. And the second is they are thinking how they should deal with a relationship with the MEE and also the local NDRC or maybe it's environmental bureau. Mm. So they should deal with the relationship with the central, central government and also local governments. But you sort of stick with a high degree of confidence that this happens on 2020. Well, to be honest, I still wait and see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of course, we hope yeah. that we, we will have a healthy, marketable yeah. carbon market. Let's talk a little bit about the social side of the environmental issues. It's called the just transition in, in many parts of well, uh, Europe, but certainly the world. Uh, you're finding responses in Spain, in Germany, where there's a, a phase out or a transition away from particularly the coal industry and questions around what to do in providing better jobs or retirement for those displaced workers, for those stranded communities. Describe how China is approaching phasing out or taking out capacity in carbon-intensive industries like the coal industry or the um, steel industry and what they're doing to address the social dimension. Well, actually, China's government and also staying old company have done a lot on that. Uh, based on a report from European Union Chamber of Commerce in China, 30% of workers in the industries of coal, steel, electrolytic, uh, and also cement and glass are facing unemployment problem. So the number in 2016 to 2017 is around 3 million people. Uh, the way China copes with the transition problem is a bit different from Europe. Uh, big companies is in steel and coal industry are mostly staying out. So uh, the government will demand the staying out companies to do something to do this uh, smoothly transition. So this means it's easier for the state to start just transition before uh, the workers end up on streets. So instead of the government, the companies are the main body which takes most of the responsibility. In 2017, five central ministries, including Ministry of Human Resources and Social Security, National uh, NDRC, and the Treasury Department issued a regulation to guide the steel and coal companies to resettle unemployment workers. Under the guidelines, a lot of companies signed agreements with other companies in industry like taxis 
and delivery services to transfer their unemployment workers to new jobs. So and, and also there are training courses organized by governments. So it will give training courses and then to help them to find a new job. And uh, according to that report, two million will promisingly transfer to a new job, mm. right? Mm. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about China's Belt and Road Initiative, a huge infrastructure initiative not just within China, but but across many parts of Asia and Africa. Critics would say that there is not enough of an environmental effort being made. And yet, it's interesting to see that China's talked about the green investment principles um, that are actually aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, as well as the Paris Agreement. Um, so I'd love to actually hear how China is trying to embed those principles within the Belt and Road Initiative. Yeah, actually, this principle just launched last Friday together with China's Green Finance Committee and also Green Finance Initiative in the City of London. And uh, now they already have uh, seven biggest Chinese banks and other stakeholders have already signed the principles. And they are members of that, including CDB, China's Development Bank, ICBC and some other other big banks. So that means later these banks, when they invest in BRI countries, they will obey these principles to do green investment. So this is a bank side. And also for those uh, MDBs that initiated by China, just like AIIB and uh, also uh, NDB, for AIIB, their uh, principle is clean, uh, lean, and green. So now they have already invested eight projects in BRI countries, and among them, seven climate mitigation and adaptation projects. And also for CDB, China Development Bank is our policy bank. They have issued 500 million USD and 1 billion euros green bonds on BRI. Mm. So the ICBC also have issued uh, 1 billion USD BRI climate bonds. So this is all their effort to do more green investment. When you think on a global scale, though, at a multilateral level about China's role in China's uh, more than just role, but its willingness to play a larger role as a leader, you know, at a time where it feels, particularly with the U.S., taking itself out of the Paris Agreement, where we need more leadership. To what degree is China willing to play that leadership role at a global level? Um, I think China never mean to be a leader, but China is a responsible country. When China commits something, China will do that. So just like addressing climate change is the issue, China knows that as the biggest emitter and also as a developing countries, we should uh, contribute to reduce emissions. So China, after the Paris Cup, and we uh, have commitment to Paris Agreement. And so we have the targets by 2020 and by 2030, we will reduce our emission largely. So I think the U.S., away from uh, this agreement, make China to be the leader. And also China have very close cooperation with EU. You know, EU actually is always the leader 
on this issue. And China, as the biggest developing countries, now is working aside by EU, and we have a very close cooperation on how to address climate change. We have a pretty diverse audience for this podcast, but、uh, and within that, a lot of students listen. And one of the questions that I get from many students is, "What advice would you give me in studying green finance, green infrastructure? You know, any dimension within sustainability? What advice would you give them from a Chinese context?" I think、uh, green economy and sustainable finance are both interdisciplinary subjects. That means, on one hand, students never get bored because you are receiving new information every day. On the other hand, they can be very challenging because this is a quite new. Area there are a lot of problems, challenges. So you'd better be、uh, prepared to be a life learner and to be open to all subjects,、uh, whether it's natural science or social science. And the economy is the same as the environment; can never be a single country's issue. So we live in a globalized world、uh, under the background of technology revolution. Uh, so no one can live without the rest of the world. So I suggest the students to interested in、uh, green economy and sustainable finance pay attention to train uh, their uh, ability in international cooperation. Learn more about economy, political and cultural knowledge from all countries. It's、okay. good advice. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's great. Look, it's been fascinating to learn about the development of China's environmental leadership and how areas like green finance and climate finance. Are leveraging smarter government policy and financial markets to address climate change. So I'd like to thank you for your time and views. Really appreciate it. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of responsible investment at Man Group. Here today with Professor Yao Wang, Director General of China's International Institute of Green Finance. Many thanks for joining us on Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks. Thank you so much. You're listening to Perspectives Toward a Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us, and special thanks to everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com/responsible-investment, or look for us on iTunes.